You don't have to be ashamed, the gurgling mass assures me, about the things coming out of your body. Its half-formed little arm sensually traces the spot where a bundle of greasy black hoses pass its throat skin, puffy and red all around it. I have things coming out of my body too. A baby scream pierces the thick, humid air, barely discernible over a loud siren. Shattered glass cylinders all around, revealed sporadically in silhouette by flickering lights. Men in gas masks travel down the rows with hammers, smashing the cylinders that are still intact, spilling their contents into the ever-deepening soup. The screaming suddenly stops. I search frantically for some explanation, but cannot get up. My limbs, feeble imitations of what they should be, splash in the fetal muck about, but do nothing to move me. A maddening itch sensation surrounds the plane on my chest where black hoses penetrate into it, but I haven't the fingers with which to scratch. It's not supposed to be this way, I sputter. It looks at once quizzical and mournful. Oh? How's it supposed to be? Another loud smash and a baby's wail. The men with the hammers abruptly silence it moving methodically down the rows. My tears mix freely with the amniotic fluid as one of the uniformed men, drenched in it from the waist down, arrives at our row. You know, the bulbous-headed creature with the malformed little arm coos. I always thought you were pretty. It reaches over with its distorted knobby paw and caresses my ribcage. I would have said something but we were in different tanks. I recoil from his touch, shuddering as the man with the hammer finally reaches me. That was a segment from a horror short story by Alex Bayman. He's well known for his current project, Hampshire, in which he is attempting to make hamster habitats that are fully submersible and can sustain the lives of hamsters for a period of time. This is a project he's been working on since about 2012, and uh, just recently his idea has started blowing up in the internet community. So that's who we're going to be discussing with today.
He goes by Hampshire on YouTube. He's on Twitter at Hampshire L and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hampshire. I very much urge you to buy his merchandise and uh, donate to him for all the really fantastic uh, work he's doing at the moment and providing people with great entertainment. You might notice that for the rest of this video, my microphone audio is a bit stuffed up. It sounds a bit uh, echoey and tinny. I tried minimalizing this effect in post, but it's still pretty noticeable, so uh, you're just gonna have to bear with it, unfortunately. I don't talk for much more than a couple minutes in total, probably. So regardless of that, I think we have a very entertaining show on our hands. Hello, Hello. and welcome, welcome to the Eerie Hour. Tonight, Tonight, I'm joined, joined by someone very special, special. one of my, my personal, personal heroes, Alex Bayman, aka Mad, Mad Scientist, aka Underwater Hamster Guy, an author, tech enthusiast, as well as someone making underwater habitats for hamsters. Alex, welcome to the most cursed podcast on the internet. I hope so. All those things you said about me are true. I do make underwater ha hamster habitats. And, and you've written quite, quite a few books, books haven't you? Yeah. I was fortunate to be able to um, take this microphone, this blue snowball on the uh, uh, plane and through the, uh, in, onto the ship. Metal, like, x-ray things kept detecting it as something weird, so they had to, like, when I got onto the ship, I was asked to take the knife out of my backpack. And so, yeah, no. I don't know, it must be shaped, maybe they think it's like a Stalgrenaut, World War II era sort of grenade sort of thing. Who knows? So, uh, I don't think the importance of what you, Alex, are doing uh, can be quite understated, because quite frankly, I think this is the kind of spirit of creation, this energy that dry has driven civilization for millennia. So, uh, and I do mean that genuinely. Uh, well, well, I mean, you think of what? Uh, da Vinci? Do you think he was thinking, oh, one day my inventions will be used, uh, like, in such a way? He was probably just screwing around in the same way you're doing with hamster habitats right now. Well, anyway, so what would you say your absolute end game is with Hampshire? When you can say the, pro uh, the project, you have finished it. Well, um... Currently, I'm trying to perfect Megahab, which is going to become the standard large format habitat. I want to get really good at making uh, like two or three different sizes of habitat and just get it, making them over and over in the same way. So I can have uh, eight, eight of the Megahab structures in a ring connected to each other by a, the modular tunnel system, which should be sufficient a living space for about 10 hamsters, and I did choose a breed of hamster that is safe to cohabitate, apparently. Cool, well... Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, there, what, like, like a array, array setup, setup around, around uh, with, with all these mega habs? That's, that's incredible. incredible. I, I, I didn't realize you were going to eventually go for more than just one, but, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm also, also very curious, I remember uh, one of your Patreon goals was about eventually starting a sort of underwater mouse utopia kind of experiment, right? No, everybody associates it with that experiment just because it involves rodent habitats, but I, that was never my interest. I'm using hamsters of all the same gender anyway, so it can't really turn out that way. Right. Uh, sorry, I, maybe I should have clarified, but I meant the 
uh, on one of your last Patreon goals, it says something about having a multi-generational colony of mice underwater, right? Oh yeah. After the uh, after I perfect the process of uh, interconnecting Habitats Five Tunnels, I'd like to build a single larger one uh, that will be multi-generational. And the, the main purpose of that is to do it, at least one actual useful experiment with this project and also to uh, have a proof of concept of using sand as a ballast material because what's limiting me on the size of the habitats right now is the weight. I, ha I have to be able to physically lift the habitat and transport. I'm already up to, six, to 60 pounds at the, at the largest one. And it's, it's awkward to lift something like that that's in front of you. It's really hard to get under, you know, and, and wading through water, uh, wading through water as well with that weight, that would be uh, not really because uh, because once it's in the water, some of the buoyancy is canceled out, canceled out by the buoyancy. If I if I want to build one that's much larger, I basically cannot use lead weights that are already in the habitat because I won't be able to physically pick it up and transport it. What I have to do is I have to transport it with an empty ballast tray, float it out to where I want to sink it and then use a dredge pump to suction sand off the bottom and put it in the balustrade to hold thing down. Which is less elegant because you need a bigger balustrade because sand is not as dense or as heavy for given volume as lead. But it's really the only practical way to, to go any bigger than I already have. Once you're done with that, you'll start uh, going towards Skyhab, right? Yeah, uh, I already have the habitat shell built. I don't have any electronics added. I have the weather balloon but it, it whether or not uh it will lift the habitat is still an open question i haven't done any tests because the the main cost there is uh the helium canister and industrial sized helium tank is actually it's quite costly several hundred dollars um i might switch to a cluster of smaller balloons because the the price jump between three foot diameter balloons which is about as large as party balloons get and proper weather balloons, which are 7 to 12 feet in diameter, is, is substantial. Saved just by uh, using a cluster of three-foot balloons under a netting instead of one large balloon. Go ahead. Uh, you're, you're going, going for, for like, like an, an up-type up setup then, like, like the, the, you know, the movie Up, up where it's like, like hundreds of uh, tiny balloons attached to a massive house? Basically, yes, and the largest... That will be awesome. The biggest, the biggest hindrance there is actually the weight of the water that I have to lift for them to have something to drink while they're up there. Oh, it will not course. be up there overnight. Right, yeah. Just be for the spectacle. I bought a drone some, some months ago just for this project so that I can get the money shot, which will be footage of them at altitude uh, as close as I can safely get the drone to them and see them running around inside the habitat up in the sky. I can't send it any higher than 400 feet, though, because of FAA regulations on oh. uh, any sort of civilian aircraft. <laughs> well, do canisters count as civilians in this case? They should be. I mean, you're putting, like, a forced evolutionary pressure on them, putting them under the water. Who knows what bounds they might achieve? In a few decades, we might have uh, humans and dwarf hamsters cohabitating. Anyway, uh, so, so what do you think the actual practical applications are of the technology you are currently implementing on a miniature scale with hamsters is? What advantages do we gain from living underwater other than it just being really awesome? Saturation diving. 
if you have a, normally when you're scuba diving from the surface you have limited time at depth uh, the longer you breathe air under greater pressure then then the more the, the additional pressure is some of the nitrogen gas from your from the air in, in your scuba tanks into your blood and into your soft tissues in dissolved form incredible uh, that's what it, yeah that's what tables are for they're to calculate how long you can spend at a certain depth before you start to reach dangerous levels of nitrogen in your blood uh, that will injure or kill you if you go, go to the surface without decompressing that's wow compression stops are for on the way up that's also what decompression chambers are for but you can completely uh cheat your way out of that if you have a habitat at depth with an air pressure inside that's equivalent to the water pressure outside to return to in between your dives instead of having to go back to the surface. Um, then yeah, you can really high Yes, they do if you're using a, a helium-based breathing gas, but the only such open ocean habitat in the world be still being used today is Aquarius, which uses standard atmospheric air, which is why they're limited to 50 feet. Any, um, if, if you have a habitat to return to between your dives, the pressure uh, appropriate for the depth, then you don't, you com you completely evade the bends, you evade having to decompress until the end of the mission when you have to come up. So you can you can just then stay down as long as you have money for basically to keep funding the habitat operation. Uh, you, uh, it, how to put this? You can, your your bottom time is effectively limited only by your physical endurance. It's dry. And warm to return to to eat to to bathe to use the bathroom to sleep and to refill your scuba tanks so that that means a difference in uh, two hours per day at 50 feet versus nine hours uh, every day for as long as you, you operate the habitat um, until you have to decompress which is lengthy at the end you have to decompress for up 17 hours anyway the, one of the reasons you might want to do saturation diving uh, is mariculture, which is offshore aquaculture, uh, basically sea farming. Whoa, well, could you, you know, could you fill me in on what aquaculture is? I've heard the term, but I can, can sort of infer what it's about, but could you uh, please uh, inform us? Like what, what kind, kind of things are aquaculture farmed? Um, fish, crab, uh, right. seaweed, any edible sea life. Um, for the most part, it's done on land. But increasingly, there are offshore, uh, open ocean sea farming operations. They're small enough right now that they can be tended to by teams of scuba divers that are ferried out to the work site by a boat, um, by a speedboat. Right. Uh, maybe you know once or twice a month. But as you scale the, these operations up, that's not going to cut it anymore. If you want a lar really large offshore farming operations, you're going to need people there 24-7 and you're going to want something like a saturation habitat so they can stay underwater for long periods and just cycle out, out your team every every uh, two weeks or so. Yeah, yeah that, that would make, make a lot of sense. sense. Also, also, I really, I really love, love the, the idea, idea of being on an, an underwater, underwater farm, farm, just chilling with my farm brewers, you know, maybe, maybe that'll, that'll be, be like great, great, grand son's achievements will be uh, underwater, underwater, being underwater, underwater farmers. farmers, who knows? So, it won't seem so glamorous then. Well, well no, 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 it'll be, be like, like Bioshock, but, uh, but um. No, I mean it'll just be a, a fact of life, like how before um, 
passenger air travel was commonplace. It was romanticized as something futuristic. Right. And we just were like, oh god, we have to sit on an airplane for, for two hours. It's not it's not impressive anymore. That's a good point. So. What is, what is the, the biggest, biggest problem with making an underwater habitat, habitat that, that wouldn't be immediately ob obvious to a layman such as myself or Patrick? Ballast weight. A lot of yeah. people think, oh, it must be expensive to build a habitat, but it's really not. It's just a metal shell with windows. And if you uh, if it's designed that you, so you can decompress inside it, then it has a SOSOR-based life support system for the hours that, that it's a sealed environment. But uh, when it's not sealed, you're just using an air compressor to send air down. It's very rudimentary. The, the expensive part is weighing down all that trapped air. But what makes that expensive is uh, if you've ever ordered something off of Amazon that's really hefty, then you know how much that magnifies the shipping cost. Oh, disgustingly so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, every cubic foot of air requires 64 pounds just to cancel it out to make it neutrally buoyant. Every, every square, square what? what? Every cubic foot. Of air. Wow. wow. Wait, si did, did you say, say 60 pounds? 64 pounds. Four pounds. Just to, that's just to cancel it out. In order to weigh it down securely, you want at least twice that. So you're looking so, at about 128 oh. pounds. Yeah. So you, you just, just about, about need a miniature crane. If, if you, you were, were to, to fully implement, like, the mega hab array you were talking about. No, no, because I've sized the individual habitats. They're modular. They, they separate from each other. Right. Individually and connect them once they're underwater. So each habitat is sized so I can personally... But um, human-scale habitats have to be uh, transported by a rail car often. They have to be uh, hoisted onto the ship using an A-frame crane, a special type of ship that has a crane on it. Wow. Carried on the deck or towed behind it. Uh, the weight is what creates all these logistical difficulties and expenses, which I think can be overcome using the uh, sand ballast system, which has really no downsides except for that uh, it makes the habitat a bit uglier. So yeah. you need a larger Dredging. barge tray uh, than you would if it was, uh, if it was lead. So uh, what, what do you, do you think, think is, so, so this, this is getting more into the, the I guess, paranormal side stuff. stuff. I don't, I don't know, know how into this, this you are, but like, you, uh, you, you know, know, you've, you've written, written a few scary stories here and there, so... Like, like the, the one creepy pasta I remember listening to that was pretty good that you would post on your Twitter account. So uh, what's, what's your, your what, what do you think, think the spookiest aspect of the ocean and large bodies of water is? Low visibility, of course. Even in the very best conditions, you can't see further than about 200 feet, and usually it's much less than that. So you can be uh, immersed in water and surrounded by just a sort of fog in all directions where you can't even see the surface. Right, and you're you're weightless. You're hanging there, and you can't see what's been what's underneath you. You can't see what's above you. You don't know if you're up right side up or not. So that uh, that sort of yeah, you can... yeah, that taps into very deep primal fear people have of the unknown and not and being helpless in the dark or in a situation where you can't tell what's around you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've had innumerable nightmares since uh, since a little kid is of being like trapped underwater. You know. Being able to, uh, unable to, like, orient yourself in a real direction and struggling against the water pressure. It, yeah. Um, for me, in addition to that, it's just the sheer, sheer vastness of the ocean and essentially that we haven't really, uh, explored much of it, let alone inhabited any of it. Well, apart from, like, oil rigs and, uh, and stuff like that. It's actually a higher percentage than is often quoted. 
It was quoted at like 5% prior to 2012, but then there was a, a really expansive ex, uh, and well-funded oceanic survey in 2012 that increased that to about 20% that we have examined either with submersibles or drones or chipping away at it. That's we pretty have, impressive. We mapped the, we've mapped the terrain itself from orbit yes. using satellites, but we have not... When the percent, when they give you that small percentage of what we've personally seen, that's what we—that's the amount that we've gone down and, and looked at, like with cameras or with our own eyes. Right. Okay. okay so, so we, we do, do have, have a good idea of what the bottom of the ocean, ocean floor is like. We just haven't, haven't seen it uh, most of it with our own eyes. Right. All the life, life, like all the different types of life are and stuff. Like every time they go down, they find new ones. Uh, that's true. That's not an exaggeration. They've found at least one new species with every dive. Yeah. That's, that's just, just astounding, astounding to me, like, like the, the incredible biodiversity, biodiversity we have yeah, a, a, in, in the, the oceans. oceans. Well, it's like, easy to forget the ocean is not a, it's not a two-dimensional area like land yeah. mass. It's three-dimensional, and you have different species that live in different uh, layers of the ocean. So I it compounds by many times the space for different uh, life forms. I hadn't, I hadn't considered, considered that aspect, aspect but that, that makes, makes sense, sense yeah. yeah. Have, Have you, you ever had, had any paranormal or just unexplainable experiences with a land or water base? Um, only two, really. One of them was just sleep paralysis, but I didn't know what it was at the time. Oh, that, that would have been, been so really creepy. It was, quite, it was quite alarming before playing. Uh, I was partly awake and sort of semi-hallucinating and in you know, dark. I was I was a child and I saw in the corner of the ceiling a dark sort of triangular shape that was just the shadows in that corner uh, taking on the form of a, a bird like a crow or oh. something and it seemed to be shape shifting and uh, moving around to the different yeah. corners and I could see like an eye uh, peering at at me as though the shadow was a hole like a hole in the ceiling to somewhere else and that something was looking through that that shadow hole at me from behind the ceiling and that yeah. was i that was kind of distressing um the other one was as an adult and i i this was just a trick of light but it, sometimes you're in situations where where the, um, the interplay of light and shadow can be visually confusing oh absolutely i was walking i was walking home at, at night and there was light coming out of a second-story apartment uh, being cast onto the street, and then there was also light from uh, a car passing by. And I think what I must have seen was a shadow of somebody in the apartment, but it looked... You know how if somebody stands uh, in a p particular spot and then you have a moving light source that moves by them? Yeah. yeah. The shadow sort of stre streams away from their feet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Life force? I saw that as though somebody was standing in front of me on the oh. sidewalk, but there wasn't a person there. There was just the shadow coming. Oh, well, well the, the first time, time like, talking about sleep paralysis, the first, first time I heard about that, that it made me never want to sleep again. again. Like, like, I could, I could wake, wake up, up in the middle of the night and, like, be seeing, like, <laughs> shadow people and stuff, you know? It's like a... I, I, you're lucky, you're lucky you've never had sleep paralysis. I used to get it terrible uh, when I was a kid, and I still get it probably at least once or twice a week. Oh, wow. And there's definitely this uh, sense, like this, this like, you're laying there and you're paralyzed, and there's this kind of sense of something evil and spooky in the room that's going to get you. It's a really weird kind of spooky feeling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so troubling once you understand what it is.
even then, uh, as far as I'm concerned, like even phenomena that we can understand, like rationally, uh, you and I understand that sleep paralysis is a figment of your imagination, right? The shadows you're seeing and stuff. But on a more primal level, it still would very much scare you, you know? Uh, I suppose. Yeah, well, maybe you have stronger resolve than I, probably, actually. <laughs> I'm, I don't handle scares real well, but, uh... Well, you feel like you can't breathe, that's the... That's the spooky... Is that, does, is that universal across, uh, across, um... It's common. This is why many um, medieval paintings of sleep paralysis depict the demon sitting on your chest. Okay. That's interesting. Trying to fill, fill in the gap and, and create a rationale as to why you can't breathe. Huh. Yeah, yeah I, think I think I had, had a dream. I had, I had a dream like that, that one time, time actually, uh, where, where like uh, there was, was like a, a Russian, Russian soldier on the roof, and I was like lying on a on the concrete next to my house. And on top of a roof was this Russian guard with an AK-47, and he drops the AK-47 on my chest, and I can't breathe. That was pretty weird. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, um, what do you think of the possibility of cryptids above ground and below the water's surface? Um, I think we have examined enough of the uh, land masses on the surface that we're not going to find anything really large occasionally that's small like a new insect or a frog or something uh, we've also found there's also just not room in the ecosystem for anything really big besides the colossal squid and and the whales right whales and colossal squid are are the two really large uh sea creatures so to speak um uh, and everything smaller than that down to the size of perhaps a shark we, we already know about. We occasionally see weird stuff that's known to science, but that's not known to the, the like, lay people. Yeah. This famous uh, cryptid video of Deep Staria enigmatica, which is a giant jellyfish species, that uh, passing by a, a camera mounted to the support strut of a oil rig, and it just looks like this billowing um, mass of, of flesh passing by the camera, and it's, it's just gigantic, and, and Everybody was speculating on what it was. Some people said it was a whale placenta. Some people, you know, thought it was, you know, uh, aliens or something. But it was, it was just a lot, people are not aware that there are tremendously large species of invertebrates in the ocean. Um, man o' war is or siphonophora are colony creatures that can be like up to a mile long, but they're like long strands of interconnected uh, invertebrates. Um, I don't think we're going to find anything really large. We do occasionally find strange smaller things like microorganisms or when they found the first xenophytophores, which are single-celled organisms the size of an orange. Wow. And, yeah, that confuses people because they think that can't be possible. You can't have a single cell. Mm. Like it's got to be made of cells. What is it made of? If you look at yeah. it closely, if not cells, it's made it of like the same thing. It's like a tiny ball. Yeah, it's made of the same thing the cells are made of proteins and amino acids they're just not organized into cells at the microscopic level it's just the the structure of the cell but blown up to the macroscopic scale so the, the, that's the kind of weird thing that we 
there's a lot of also unusual discoveries that we've made in the ocean. Like uh, uh, a lot of people are surprised to learn that horseshoe crab blood is worth eighteen thousand dollars a quart. What? Because it, it horseshoe crab blood is worth eighteen thousand yeah. dollars a quart because it contains an enzyme that we're unable to synthesize. That is uh, a critical uh, ingredient in a. Uh, Test that is used for the I believe, pure, purity of certain pharmaceuticals, and there's mm. just no alternative for it. So they don't. That's why there's steep fines for anybody who messes with horseshoe crabs, and you're not allowed without a license to. And, and they only award a certain number of licenses to just take horseshoe crabs home and, and breed them. And if if you, if you Google it, you'll find these disturbing things of, of horseshoe crabs. Yeah, like being milked or for their yeah. blood. They, they they're, they're mm. just held in clamped in place and they have these suction devices that are sucking just enough blood out that they, they, they don't die but they maximize the the profit basically for the operation that's farming them that, that sounds just blue I believe too it's a weird yeah. uh, that, that sounds, sounds positively horrifying like smurf <laughs> it is yeah. imagine if that was, was I, I, I would, would say, say a lot of that has to do with, with, with like, like uh, so you're you talking about the giant cell I don't think like or oh, the, the uh, giant, giant the, the colossal, colossal squid, squid right? right? Uh, uh, I, I guess, guess that it's because we can get such large uh, fauna down, down in the ocean, ocean because there's not as much uh, pressure, pressure from, from like, like gravity, gravity to like crumpling down, down right? right? Is, would, would, would that, that be part, part of it? it? Well, no. There's, there's a ecological phenomenon called deep sea gigantism. I don't think it's due to the physical um, properties. I think it's it's um, due Isolation. to other factors. I don't I don't fully understand it. I think it's something to do with the fact that they don't have much in the way of competition down there, and they can afford to be opportunistic predators that don't right. spend any calories. They just they just wait. Also, also um, contrary to what horror would have you believe, deep sea creatures tend to be fragile. They tend to live on on. They grow very large, but they tend to live on very few calories. Uh, so they move only when they absolutely relatively delicate. So they don't and really if you pose bring them much to the surface. They die. <laughs> yeah, they decompress and they they expand like the blobfish. The blobfish is is an iconic deep sea creature, which looks nothing like that at depth. It only turns into that, that gross blob because of decompression. Yeah, they, they joke that the, the blobfish, blobfish looks, looks like uh, one, one of the, the politicians here in Australia. Australia. Because it, it really, really does. does. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of something, a relevant topic if we're talking about oceanic exploration because you have the Great Barrier Reefs, which are absolutely the most spectacular reefs in the world. Uh, but you also have a, I don't know her name, she looks like Miss Piggy. She's an oil tycoon. I know who you're talking about. Very, very. just dumps, dumps industrial waste into the Great Barrier Reef, which has driven a Bleach, coral bleaching event that has bleached something like 85% of, of Great Barrier Reefs so far. Yeah. yeah There's no significant pushback just because she's irresistibly powerful in Australia. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, think it's, it's Gina, Gina Reinhardt. Reinhardt. I'm looking yeah. it up now. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's her. Uh, uh, yep, yep, Gina Reinhardt. Reinhardt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're, we're suddenly, suddenly facing, facing an ecological disaster on the Barrier Reef. I mean, like, uh, uh, with, uh, have, have you heard about the crown of thorn starfish? They're yeah, moving in, uh, uh, they feed off of uh, dead coral, and then they, so... Yeah, and you, enough of it has died that you've created a smorgasbord for them. And what yeah. the real shame is, is that the profits lost from the loss of tourism are, are 
exceeding by many times anything you stand to gain from the coal. Uh, yeah. Because coal is not going to be in use for much longer. It, you're not going to be. We're not going to be using coal in a matter of decades. Whereas, uh, if you if Australia had managed to maintain their their reefs, there will always be people willing to spend big bucks to snor snorkel on on beautiful healthy corals. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. It's not a good trade. It does, it does sadden me that in my lifetime I'll never be able to uh, see um, the full glory of the uh, Barrier Reef. It's it's time really has pretty much come to an end. But yeah, um, Australia in general, from a uh, biological perspective, is pretty interesting. Just given the isolation of it, you see so many like weird creatures like uh, that haven't developed. Yeah, Bergens. I'm surprised you knew, knew that you know that term at all. I thought that was mainly a thing Australians said like uh I have a, a close Australian friend who informs me of these things. Oh oh good. good. So you know all about the bottlers, the super cheap autos, the uh, yeah. I also know I don't know I'm not sure if you were aware yourself that you can buy a, a low powered laser gun specifically for deterring magpies. What? Oh, well, I want one of those, man. You, you know, you know all too well that there are seasons during which magpies become aggressive and will dive bomb people. There's now a company selling a laser dash that temporarily blinds them and will will repel magpies. Well, that's, that's good. good. Uh, that's I mean, I mean like, like I, I wish I had had one of those when I was like riding my bike when I was like five or six years old and, and get getting uh, horrifically swooped by these uh, goddamn birds. <laughs> yeah, they're not fun. Yeah, yeah but, play around those damn magpies. Uh, everything yeah. in Australia is trying to kill you. And I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure they're protected as well, so you can't shoot them. Uh, because they're, they're a native species. Them. What's, What's that? that? Yeah, you can la you can laser them. Yeah, you can laser them for sure. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's pretty much everything I wanted to ask you. Thank you so much for coming on this, uh, Alex. I really do appreciate it, man. And, uh, yeah, yeah we, we both... Uh, plug my my Patreon and, and merch. We've, We've got, got no, no, no problem, problem with that, man. No problem. I'm at patreon.com slash Hampture, H-A-M-P-T-U-R-E. Uh, I'm also on YouTube at... Uh, just search Hampture on YouTube. It'll come right up. And there's a merchandise shelf under all of my videos where you can buy T-shirts, you can buy posters, and... Uh, the, the sort of things that will start really interesting, bizarre conversations with people who have not yet been enlightened. Conversations, conversations like, like this. Astrology. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. yeah uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, you so, so much, man. man. You really are, like, a very inspirational figure to me. Uh, uh, just that you're uh, doing what you're doing, I find incredible. I wish you a good, good evening. All right. Bye. Bye.